You've seen their TV shows. You've watched their webcasts. Now, Partigan and Stapes invite you to Poker in the Ears. Hello, my babies, and welcome to Poker in the Ears. I am Uncle Daddy Joe Stapleton. Here's my work wife, James Hardigan. Obvious one this week. Happy Halloween, Joseph. Love Halloween, but I think it's still canceled this year. I'd ask you, but you guys don't even really do it anyway, right? We do Halloween. We don't do it to the same scale. Halloween as a concept is not canceled, but the idea of just going around in large groups to people's houses and demanding that they hand you unwrapped sweets with their bare hands, I'm going to say that's probably off the agenda for 2020. In masks. <laughs> Coming up on this week's show, it's Poker Movie Monday, two for Tuesday on a Wednesday. Which you're listening to on a Thursday or maybe Friday if you forgot the show came out yesterday or the weekend. J- just get on with it. We've got the whole week covered for your movie pleasure or pain, depending how you feel about the movie's shade and what I'm calling the Stu Unger movie. There is a documentary about Stu Unger as well, so we should be specific. This is the fictional one, not the documentary one. I'm sorry, I, I got lazy. The Michael Imperioli Stu Unger movie and Shade. Uh, James, our super fan, has chosen which of these uh, masterpieces? Uh, he chose High Roller, the Stu Unger story, a.k.a. Stewie. He did say would love to appear on the show, was so keen to appear on Poker in the Ears, he said, I will even re-watch that shit show of a movie. Oh, well then. Uh, I, I actually have a lot to say about both of those movies, but I'm cool. going to save it until later in the show because I think you might actually be surprised. I think you might be surprised about what I have to say about these films. Everyone's going to be surprised. Oh, thank goodness. Uh, This is typically where we talk about other movies or TV that we've watched. Uh, But somehow I didn't have time to watch more than two movies this week. So uh, I've got nothing in this department. I'm going to give everyone a break from my bad beat stories. So let's just get into it. Okay. Well, before we get into the movies... A couple of PSAs, couple of announcements. You probably saw EPT Online was announced on Monday. This may or may not be the online poker series that Bert Stevens was alluding to on last week's podcast. Son of a uh, Bert. It is a series that is taking place from November the 8th to the 18th. Very excited about this. The irony is that EPT Online had already been talked about. It had already been touted pre pandemic the idea of having an online version of a european poker tour festival has been certainly proposed for many years now it's finally happening and suffice to say we are going to be streaming a few of the events on the schedule uh you've probably seen that there is a 10k high roller we're going to stream the final table of that there is a 25k super high roller we're going to stream the final table of that we have the 1k national championship when we're sorry did you say 25k super high roller online i did that is fucking sick that's incredible. Sorry, that needed a little bit more attention. I sure. apologize for sure. interrupting. I should have led with that one, shouldn't I? But it's actually <laughs> the third event that we're going to be streaming because sandwiched Damn. between the two high rollers, you know how we have the 1K National Championship at every stop of the tour? Yeah. So like the Spanish National Championship, for example, takes place in Barcelona. Of course, there's no nation when it comes to online, but where are all of our online events played now? 
the PokerStars Arena. So the 1K Arena Championship is a thing. Oh. We'll have the final table of that one. And I'm really pleased that we're going to be streaming three days of the EPT main event, the 5K main event. We're going to pick up the action on day two when they'll probably play through the bubble, play into the money. Day three, when they play down to the final table, and of course, we'll close things out with the final table of the main event. And this counts, by the way, as an EPT main event win. Same trophy that you would get for winning a land-based EPT. Should be an exciting series. Looking forward to that. And before we kick off EPT Online, here's the other big reveal of the week. EPT Retro is returning. Shouldn't be any big surprise. We've been talking about it for a while. We've been teasing it for a while. But our next series of streams starts next Tuesday. That is November the 3rd. We abandoned the European Poker Tour at the end of Season 6. So we are going to stream Season 7. Five events over six days. And then we're going to stop. And we've said that all along, right? We said that once we get to the end of Season 7, which is when Joe joined the tour, which was just under 10 years ago, we're going to really start cannibalizing ourselves if we go any further than that. So that will draw a line under EPT Retro. But we are looking to launch PokerStars Retro in the new year. Uh We know that there are old APPT TV shows. We know there are old LAPT TV shows. Maybe we can dig out some of the NAPT TV shows from season one that are in the archives. So there is going to be more retro stuff in early 2021. Um, Details on that to follow. But yeah, I think season seven of the EPT, we've got London, Barcelona, PCA 2011, Berlin and Madrid. And of course, it concludes with the first ever tournament of champions. All former EPT winners come together in Madrid to play to find out who's going to be the champion of champions. And I do think that's kind of an appropriate way, right, to end our retro run with the kind of champion of all those first few seasons. Yeah, no, that'll be a nice little reminder for me to pretend to be like, who's this guy? And you're like, Joe, you just did the commentary for him like three months ago. Um, So that means that we will be redoing at least a couple of episodes that you and I have done. Yes. Now, the weird thing is, I've been revisiting a lot of shows that I've done for some time now, right? But my memory is not so good that I remember every single hand, and your memory is shocking. So it will be like you're seeing it for the first time. I'm pretty certain of that. Um, Should point out that EPC Retro will be streaming in all the usual places at the usual time. When I say usual time... You know now that when we go live, whether it was with Stadium Series, whether it was with WCOOP, and as will be the case with EPT Online, that's 6.30 UK time, 7.30 Central European time, and that will be the same for Retro. When we did Retro back in the spring-summer, it was on during the daytime in Europe. We're going to be an evening show, and that is music to Joe's ears because it means he doesn't have to get up at 2.30 in the morning before he's even gone to bed. (laughs) Yes, it is... It is a, an evening show for you means it's just a regular morning show for me, which is yeah. good. Yeah. Uh, I, I Actually, I'll be honest with you. I am a morning person. I would much rather start streaming at like 7.30, 8 a.m. than start streaming in the evening. By 6 in the evening, I'm lagging. I have to pump myself yeah. up with caffeine to keep no, going. No, that's that not easy either. No, I would definitely rather start at 8 a.m. than 6 p.m., but I'd rather start at 6 p.m. than 5 a.m. 
I take that <laughs> on board. Okay, now we can launch into the movies we're going to be discussing. Uh, as I think I mentioned at the end of last week's podcast, both films were released in 2003. We normally do films chronologically, so let's do them alphabetically instead. SH comes before <laughs> ST, so Shade will be the first film we discuss this week. And Joe, even though we build this as Bad Poker Movies 2, because we did a podcast three years ago called Bad Poker Movies, where we talked about Lucky You and Deal. And I think that that is an applicable title. This film is not as bad as I remember. And like Runner Runner, I actually think Shade is pretty watchable. Don't get me wrong, it's not very good. And there's very little originality. It's so derivative. But it's actually fine. And I actually brought a smile to my face in places. I I actually completely agree with you. What I've sitting there watching thinking was, if I had never seen a movie before in my life, I might not have actually thought this movie was that bad. Um, Unfortunately, everything good about this movie is ripped off from another movie. Yeah. And everything bad about this movie is also ripped off (laughs) from another movie. It, It really felt like a Frankenstein monstrosity out of a lot of other better movies. But like you said, it is kind of watchable not having all those other movies kind of like in the forefront of my mind. But really what it did was it kind of, there were some really great movies in the nineties. I I happen to think the nineties is my favorite era of movies ever. Um, And the nineties really, did a great job of like crime and con movies. I think, you know, the nineties really sort of crushed that. And basically this movie, I I compiled a list of all the movies that I think shade ripped off rounders, the sting Chinatown matchstick men, two days in the Valley, get shorty oceans 11, the Cincinnati kid, California split heat, the usual suspects, albino alligator trees, lounge swingers go big hand for the little lady and confidence. There are certainly elements of all of those films in the DNA of shade. And, but I would agree that just in a vacuum, this movie was kind of cute at times kind of clever at times um it didn't it kind of misfired on caring about any of the characters i think the Uh, problem is that every single character is an archetype who's not fleshed out at all and every character is unlikable yeah and i think that everyone's phoning it in except for Stuart townsend who is like trying real hard but isn't quite getting there well he's thinking i may have been fired as aragorn but i'm gonna own the role of vernon that's what he's thinking he, he does try to own it there's like a couple of times where i don't know if they just there's like one scene where he is very clearly speaking in an irish accent um <laughs> i'm like did you guys not notice the way you're out of and well, one thing i was shocked about this movie had a lot of money well, it seemed like I think they, the key thing to say is is when it starts, there's actually a lot of promise here. First of all, it opens with the RKO Radio Pictures logo, which, of course, brings back so many memories of so many great classic films. You have a prologue which actually gets you really hooked. This idea of this 
old school underground poker game that gets robbed. A cheat gets discovered in the game. A gunfight breaks out. Everyone's dead except the cheat, who's the dean, and this other guy in their left kind of pointing guns at each other in a standoff. Roll credits. And the credits, you have all these sleight of hand tricks, which are really, really clever. And I believe that Damien Nyman, the writer-director of this film, is an expert at sleight of hand. He's an expert at handling cards and magic tricks. And I believe that he performed many of the tricks that you see in the opening credits. And while those credits are rolling, you see the names of some very talented actors, people like Gabriel Byrne, Tandy Newton, Jamie Foxx, Hal Holbrook. And you think, this should be, this could be really good. Yeah, it isn't. But again, I come back to the fact that it's very watchable. Um, But as ever, it's important to highlight all the things that it gets wrong about the game of poker or the way that it treats poker. And I think the central problem with this film, its single biggest flaw is it rips off this idea from the Cincinnati kid that everyone wants to sit down with the man. Although in this film, he's called the Dean. And the idea is if you beat the Dean, you become the Dean. Except everyone knows. Doesn't make any sense. (laughs) The guy is a cheat. He has a reputation as the best cheat in the business. And yet, everyone seems really keen to play cards against him, even though they know he doesn't play by the rules. And the whole premise of the film is to beat the Dean, you have to be a better cheat than the Dean. And I could never get behind that. I can't buy into that as a concept. I would have preferred it if having had that prologue where at a young age it was discovered that he was a cheat, that he made some vow that he was only ever going to play straight and was going to beat the game legitimately. That was his kind of like warning. And he's now become an expert at spotting cheats and that's why he's so hard to beat. That would have been a better premise for this film. Yes, it does not. I mean, nothing about that premise makes sense, right? Why would you allow the cheating? Why wouldn't you just grab his hand and be like, what's going on with you, you cheat? And also, if you beat the Dean, you become the Dean isn't a thing. <laughs> it's not a thing. It's not even a thing in legitimate poker. Like, no, there is no, like, title of best poker player that if you beat that player one time, you become that title. Unless you're talking about the World Series of Poker main event champion. And even then... It only lasts for a year. Like, yeah. none of that premise yeah. makes sense at all. The one thing I will I will say in the movie's defense is that it manages to not butcher Hold'em that badly because they don't have a ton of Hold'em no. in the movie. You're right. There is a lot of stud and there is a lot of five-card draw in this film. Um, I did make some notes about things that either amused me or tilted me. Um, I say that it's full of unlikable characters. There is no one more unlikable in this movie than Jamie Foxx's character. And he's meant to be slightly obnoxious. But the first time we meet him, when he's playing in that underground game and finds himself all in with a set of nines against kings, and there's a king on the turn, and he says to the dealer, baby, you're a 10, but I really need a nine, and then gets his nine on the river. And then when he goes up to talk to Gabriel Byrne, they're like, that was hot shit downstairs. Yeah, I mean, pulling a two-outer is, is really is really hot shit. But you realize... But hold on a second, hold on a second. So, yes, that's that doesn't make any sense in that moment, right, to compliment somebody for hitting a two-outer. But when you realize that they're actually just buttering him up, I can yeah. forgive that line. Yes. Because they would want to make it seem like 
they thought he was a good player, even though he's a, he's their mark. Yes, but here is the problem, and I'm not just saying this because I rewatched the film. I remember this from when I originally watched this film, and bear in mind, I had such high hopes that when I first watched this back in 2004, 2005, that's why I was so negative going into this, because I have such bad memories of being so badly disappointed by this film. And yeah. one of the things I was disappointed at was how obvious it was, and to me, it was obvious from the get-go that having been introduced to Gabriel Byrne and Tandy Newton as the con artists, that they're not bringing Jamie Foxx into this to be part of the con. He is so clearly the mark from the word go. So that twist didn't really work for me at all. Um, that was the problem of of the, the string of con movies we had, I'd say, from like 19, maybe even 1986 to 2005. There was like 20 years where like it was really impossible to be sort of wowed by any of these movies because you were always expecting another twist. There was no amount of twists um, that could have like really um, surprised anybody. And the, the, all of the, the cons from the movie, and I don't want to blame this movie. I've seen them all before the ring con, the very first scene where we are introduced to, to, um, uh, Gabriel Byrne and Tandy Newton. I've seen that in a movie before. Of course. It's, um, but again, this comes back to the central problem with the film, that there's nothing original going on here. Everything about yeah. this film is derivative and has been done better before. Just one quick hashtag fun fact about the ring scene. The attendant at the gas station, who they con, is played by Glenn Plummer, an actor who was in Paul Hall Junkies, another bad movie that we had the ah. pleasure of watching earlier this year. Um, I mean, despite the fact there's money in this production, which there clearly isn't in the second film we're the going to discuss. The locations, right? I mean, they shoot in a couple of... That long tracking shot through like the what they, looks like a strip club because the girls are naked in it. It was actually like a really hot club in Hollywood at the time. All those Hollywood locations, shooting in the Magic Castle... Um, that shit is not cheap. That is not um, shooting in Los Angeles in the early 2000s. This movie c must have cost tens of millions of dollars. And look at the cast. Absolutely. But then you realize that the money ran out when you look at the shoddy transitions, the naff visual effects, and the awful really captions. Weird. It just does not fit with the rest of the film. There is one moment that we have to discuss, and this was a crushing, crushing blow to me. Stuart Townsend's character refers to Aces as American Airlines. I know. And I now realize that clearly this film came up with that nickname for Aces back in yep. 2003. So henceforth, I have to relinquish my claim to have created that nickname. And I've actually requested that we change the animation on our live stream now because we, we can't take ownership of this anymore. It's no longer our thing. I have to give that to the writer-director of Shade. Or maybe it was improvised by Stuart Townsend himself. Either way, it's not our creation, and that makes it sad. But Joe, you still got Chip in a chair. That's still your innovation. That's still your gift to the poker world. I still did come up with that in 2017. Um, I guess, look, for all of its flaws, at least it gave us American Airlines. And I, again, would close by saying, with some distance behind it, this movie, I would get, I would rate it as watchable. It is. I, Raquel was like, "What would you rate it?" I said a five. I'd give it a five out of ten. Which compared to a lot of the other movies we've watched, 
over the course of this podcast, not only poker movies, but a lot of them, there were a lot of ones and twos and threes in there. No, sure. And, and I would give this movie slightly below average. And again, just to draw attention to some of the high points, when they go to the private game, when Jamie Foxx still believes that he's actually part of the con rather than the subject of the con, we've got Mark Boone Jr. from Patriot in the game. Yes. Uh, you know, great to see him. And later on, you get to see Hal Holbrook as the professor. Uh, Mr. Molini is played by Patrick Bacow, Zorin's henchman from A View to a Kill. So there are some great moments in this thing. By the way, how funny is Jamie Foxx's worst poker face in history when he looks down at quad 10. Yes. And that's the point where everyone realizes that he is the mark in the game. And later on, when he's told that he was conned and he, they go back to the mansion that's been cleared out, it's, it's just his, his desolate, sad little voice. He goes, they had a buffet. <laughs> that was a good line. I like that line, actually. Every once in a while, there was like a fun moment uh, in this movie. There was, there was plenty to rescue it from being a total disaster. Okay, there are two things we need to talk about. Okay. The f uh, one is a major issue I have with the film, one less so. So let's deal with the, the lesser of two evils, first of all. I don't get the deal of, with Melanie Griffith's character. I don't understand the relationship between her and Sly Stallone. And more to the point, does anyone really care? It felt very shoehorned in, wasn't set up properly. A brief con uh, con conversation in her restaurant where she discusses the perks of being a restaurateur. Um, but worse than that, we need to talk about Jeff because that scene is just plain weird, nasty, and unnecessary. Jeff. Jeff yeah. is the guy who hits on Tandy Newton in the club, who is a bit of a creeper, but doesn't do anything particularly Oh my God, outrageous. the Jeff scene. Yes. And what the fuck? Jeff then kind of like hints that he's into kind of S&M. They go to Tandy's dungeon where she ties him up and then leaves him in the hands of some dodgy guys who are going to cut out his kidney and sell it on the black market. What the fuck? Without anesthesia, it appears, because I thought at the very least at the end of that scene where like someone puts something in the doctor's hand, like, OK, it's going to be a syringe and they're at least going to like knock this. Nope. Just a scalpel. Yeah. Yeah. I thought that th both that scene and where they um, end up dealing with Jamie Foxx were like too nasty. Yeah. Like, you know, shooting a guy in the in the head, believe it or not, is somehow less nasty than um, carving out his kidney while he's awake. But both of those scenes like were a little uneven compared to the rest of the movie. I agree. It's almost like they were too dark. And talking of uneven, the scene where we're introduced to Marlo, the creepy villain, where he's sitting eating dinner where there's a guy beaten up, that to me looked like it had wandered in from a spoof. That guy is just overplaying the character and chewing the scenery so badly. He's in no sense creepy, in no sense menacing. You just laugh out loud every time he opens his mouth. And what about at the end of the movie where he offers to kill Tandy Newton for yeah. Gabriel Byrne, where he's like, hey, if... Uh like like these guys do that right like he's just going to do do him a solid like yeah. hey I'll I'll kill her for you what by the way the best moment in the entire movie comes during the big poker hand that concludes this and by the way it's a five card stud hand and there are 
it's alluding to the Cincinnati Kid so much so that at the end of the film, Sly Stallone even quotes the Cincinnati Kid directly, saying about the fact that as long as I'm around, you'll still be number two. But this five-card stud hand where they're both cheating and it's a case of who cheats better wins the game. At the moment that Sly declares, I'm all in, Mr. Molini, the gangster, the host of the game, signals for a lackey to come to the table, who then pushes Stallone's (laughs) chips into the pot for him. And it's just a wonderful moment, Uh, free of irony, but hilarious nonetheless. Also, Um, a a hilarious moment is when Molini, the gangster who you assume is behind the death of Jamie Foxx, the guy who is being beaten up by his henchmen, and wants uh, Vernon and his crew dead, at the end of the movie, he's like, all right, I'm going to let it slide this time. you know what? Time. That Jennings guy was an idiot. He had it coming. He lost 80 grand. Blah. Um, of course, before all is forgiven, we have the moment when Marlowe arrives in the room and we get this Reservoir Dog-style standoff around the poker table where the tension is broken by a mobile phone call. And that cop who's just such an incidental character who kind of bursts in by himself. Um, But you know that the reveal is coming. You know that this is not going to be the ending of the film. And sure enough, we get reveal number one that Tiffany betrayed Miller, that Tandy Newton betrayed Gabriel Byrne. But the bigger reveal is that Stevens, sliced alone, and Vernon, Stuart Townsend, were colluding all along. So obvious no real big twist. I mean, it's fine. I don't need it to be a, a major twist. I don't need it to be a major reveal. But Sly goes off into the sunset with Melanie Griffith and Stuart Townsend just walks back to the Magic Castle. Roll credits. No, hold on a second. Do you remember how there was that really bizarre ending to Big Hand for the little lady? And you're like, what? Why? Like the wedding scene, right? Yeah. And you're like... Well, there was a moment in this movie at the end where Stuart Townsend gets all the money in the diner and then leaves like 500 bucks for the waitress. And then he goes back. He goes back and takes 400 of it back. Why? Why? (laughs) I don't understand it in the context of the movie. I don't understand. It's not funny. It makes you kind of think the characters are like, I I have, why? Oh. Like what was that an acting choice? I I I I genuinely genuinely don't know. Poker in the ears. Okay, let's move on to the second film we're going to discuss this week, which I did not enjoy at all. This one was as bad as I remember. I think for two reasons. Number one, this is a low budget production. And it looks like a very cheap movie. And I know that's unkind to criticize a film for that. Yeah. But also, it does such a bad job of examining the life of Stu Unger. It's supposed to be a biopic. And I get that certain characters have been fictionalized and certain characters are compound characters. But it leaves out so much. Some of the stuff it focuses on is irrelevant. And it also, again, is so derivative. It follows the standard biopic format that drives me nuts of starting in the present day and then telling the story in flashback. And it uses a device 
which is relatively clever on the surface, but again, is stolen from other movies, which is the idea that he is talking to the figure of death. I guess a bit like the conversation between the Knight and the Grim Reaper and the Seventh Seal, but I think I think of the conversations that Roy Scheider has with Jessica Lange's character in Bob Fosse's All That Jazz, where someone is talking about their life with the angel of death. I don't think it's particularly subtle. I think it's obvious from the start that's what's happening, and I've seen it all before, and I've seen it done better. Well, I haven't seen either of those movies, and I was not obvious to me. And I actually wrote here in my notes, am I horrible for liking the ending? Um, I thought that was that was one of the only things that I really liked about this. Now, like I said about Shade, had I not seen about two dozen other movies, I might have liked Shade more, thinking that Shade was the original idea of this. And no, of course, I didn't think like this idea was like, probably that original, but I hadn't seen whatever things it was ripping off. So it seemed more clever to me than that. Uh, James, I felt the exact same way about this in a way. I was less pleased with this movie uh, because I thought it had so much more potential. Yes, exactly. It's wasted potential. That's the biggest frustration I have with this film. And if it had had a little bit of focus on what aspect of his life, that they wanted to actually um, shine a light on, it would have been better, whether it was his his demons or his skill or his family life or any of those things or his relationship with his dad or the other gangsters, but it just sort of danced around between these things so much that we never really had a chance to understand any of them yeah. to get this movie is just there's nothing there's no depth to this movie no absolutely at all. absolutely and, and like shade we don't really like any of the people in this movie either um his wife does come off like a nagging wife um he does come off as completely unlikable and it's hard to understand why he makes the decisions he does. And all of the people he surrounds himself are kind of assholes too. Yeah, completely. And the key thing to say is that Michael Imperioli isn't bad in this film. He's just not given much to work with. Also, it's a real challenge to make Stuonga likable because of his flaws, his degeneracy, right? Which the film explores in a very superficial way. So it starts at 1997 at the World Series of Poker Final Table. That was the year it was played outdoors um, outside Binion's Horseshoe. It is potential third win. And the first thing I'll say is that Michael Imperioli looks a lot healthier than the real Stu Unger looked at that final table. Bizarrely, when the Poker Channel was a thing back in 2005, they used to air a lot of those old World Series shows, and that was one that was on repeat, the 97 World Series I've never seen it. I don't think I've ever seen one second of footage of the real Stu Unger. I've seen that final table, and yeah, I mean, apparently one of the reasons why he wore those sunglasses was to hide the fact that his nose was falling apart just through so much cocaine use by that point. And then we get the inevitable flashbacks to his childhood, New York in the 60s, being bullied as a child, hanging around his father's club, hanging around bookmakers, playing gin rummy, losing all of his bummits for money. And 
the whole kind of sowing the seed that his degeneracy started at an early age. And yeah. of course, the unhappy home, it just ticks every cliche in the book. The drunken father scene, the father dying, and he died while he was with a slut. And he's kind of adopted by Vincent, the gangster who becomes that father figure to him. And then when he's a little bit older, he's best friends with Bobby from The Sopranos. And that is the weirdest thing to me because Michael Imperioli will always be Christopher Moltisanti and Stephen Shepard will always be Bobby from The Sopranos. So the two of them together in this film, it's like, hey, it's Bobby and Christopher. Where's Tony? It just, I can't separate them from The Sopranos. Well, there's a, I think there's a little bit of like wink, wink, nod, nod between them also. Like, no offense if this is untrue, but sort of the impression I got from this movie, which is really weird, is that it feels a lot like a TV movie. Uh, yeah. It feels a lot like a... I know you guys don't specifically have this channel, but you must know what I'm talking about. It feels like a Lifetime movie. Yeah. This cookie cutter, bing, bang, boom, 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 yeah. love interest, da, 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 except for the fact that there's swearing and tits in it. So I don't understand... Because it's definitely not like a... The I don't think it got a theatrical release. It certainly it played on the independent film festival circuit and then tried to gain new life on home, on, on home video. But I'd be surprised if it ever made its money back, even though it was clearly made on, on quite a small budget. My guess is that there is a TV movie version of this. I'm pretty sure this aired on television okay. uh, in America as maybe even it's like main thing. And I bet they shot different versions of scenes uh, with swearing and nudity so that they could do both. So I don't, in a kind of, like I said, this would be maybe potentially offensive to the people involved. It felt like Imperioli and Shripper are taking the piss in some of the scenes. Like this is just like a, hey, we're going to go do this movie while we're on summer hiatus from Sopranos. Oh yeah, it's a piece of cake. It's a, yeah, it's this thing about this guy. It didn't really seem like I they were taking it very seriously. I do think that there are certain scenes where it looks like Michael Imperioli is trying really hard, and I think he wants to make the best of it. I just don't think he's helped by anything around him, particularly the script. There is one scene that I did think was quite good, though. It's, it's at the end of the rummy game against Mr. Miyagi, uh, which, by the way, is presented as a montage uh, with more inappropriate music. There is so much inappropriate soundtrack music in this film that just doesn't go with any of the scenes um where he guesses the guy's hand is, is pretty is pretty cool and the chance that he has the buyout for 10k but goes for it and loses the flip and loses he that no, chance that's to make the best money. part he doesn't even lose a flip is he says you either have diamonds or clubs in your hand and he offers them the buyout and he yeah. guesses diamonds and he shows the seven of spades oh right so it wasn't even a flip. He was going to get it wrong no matter what. Okay, fine. But either way, that to me sowing the seed of this guy's problem. Which Because I don't really think, as heavy-handed as it is... That's it a great scene. No, that scene, it, it, like from a, from a game theory perspective yes. and from a speaking about this, what kind of person he is, it's one of the only scenes where they show don't tell. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and... After he gets sent to Vegas, <laughs> what could possibly go wrong? Um, everything's just told so fleetingly. He wins the 100K Jim Rummy shootout. Fast forward to 1980. He plays the World Series of Poker main event. We've got no idea what's going up in that heads-up battle, but he wins. Um, the only real 
poker scene in this entire film is when he sits down in the casino with all the other players who know him and Vince Van Patten makes an appearance as one of the other poker players Vince in the game. Vince is great in the movie. Along with the guy whose hand got hammered in Casino, who plays his kind of friend and mentor, a character who I very much feel is is a compound of a number of poker players, including Mike Sexton. The late Mike Sexton, we know, is someone who is... You think DJ a, is supposed to be my, partly Mark, Mike Sexton? Mike Sexton definitely played a huge role in trying to keep Stu Unger on the straight and narrow and certainly trying to get him back into the game and, and getting him ready for the World Series in, in 1997, his comeback year, when, you know, amazingly, after a 16-year hiatus, he wins it for a record third time. So I do think there's a lot of Sexton in that character. But we get that um, that bluff when the guy gets bluffed off Kings with, 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 with seven deuce, That's which is like the good. only real poker hand in the entire film. Um, and again, the movie keeps teasing us with, oh, he could have had it all. He could have lived happily ever after. If only he'd stopped betting sports. Not quite that simple. Also, we get this really naff, um, fictionalized introduction to cocaine at some pool party in the 1980s. It's like, ah, oh, he was hanging around hookers and introduced to coke. The reality is that Stu Unger had been introduced to cocaine in the 70s, and he was introduced to it by other members of the poker community because it was a great way of staying staying up late and staying sure. focused and energized during those long playing sessions. Unfortunately, he became addicted and that's what really tore his life apart. And we get that from when we fast forward yet again, because this is really told at high speed a lot of the time. This is what's weird is it rattles through his life and yet it's still really long and boring, which is actually an achievement. I think that's quite hard to do. Um, but by the time <laughs> I, I get- think that when it, when it comes just to go back to drug use for a second, that cocaine ends up being the drug that people focus on in these movies a lot of the time because visually, right, it looks it looks visually good to be doing it with a naked girl and visually doing a bump out of a little vial in a bathroom. But, like, I was watching this with my girlfriend. I was like, okay, well, this movie is about a real person, and he had a lot of personal demons, including drugs. And I don't think they really um, – it wasn't just cocaine no. that Stu had a problem with. And I think that – we could have had a better picture of all of his demons had they not just focused on cocaine also. I think that because that's not even the real killer for most people. Well, first of all, we get to this point where it's like rock bottom where he's high all the time. He's abusing a dealer at the casino. He gets kicked out. His wife leaves him. There are a couple of things. It To me, it's criminal that neither of these things are in the film. The first is the fact that Stuunga moved on from cocaine to crack. And the reason for that is he had destroyed his nasal membranes and couldn't even get high from cocaine anymore. That's why he started smoking crack. That should have been in the film because that's when you show someone is really, really on the way out. Secondly, this is from the New York Times. This is a great anecdote. I say great. I mean in the context of storytelling. It's a horrible story. How is this not in the film, Joe? Unger's drug problem escalated to such a point that during the World Series of Poker main event in 1990, Unger was found on the third day unconscious on the floor of his hotel room from a drug overdose. However, he had such a chip lead that he was able to make it to the final table without being present and finished ninth. He wasn't even able to continue, but even though he was being blinded out, he still, in absentia, made the final nine of the World Series main event. And they don't show it in the film. Yeah, would have been a would have been a hell of a 
hell of a thing to include. You have to wonder how much actual research went in to this movie or if someone like, I always wonder the same thing, right? When I watch this, like, is this, was his dad actually a bookie? Probably right. Or whatever they showcase yeah. as, but which of the things in this movie are real and which are the things they made up to gloss over well, it? Because it seems like truth would have been more interesting than some of the fiction they included. Absolutely. And I think the few things I know, um, Yes, his dad was a bookie. Yes, he was mentored by a gangster with a different name. Uh, his wife had a different name. His daughter had a different name. So they've changed a lot of the names of real characters. It was Billy Baxter who staked him in the 1997 World Series, not some strange potential criminal syndicate that then come after him for money. He split the $1 million first prize in that event 50-50 with Billy. Of course, we can all guess what happened to Stu Unger's share of that prize money, but it's not like he'd, he'd welched on a debt, which this film right. somehow implies he did. Um, I mean, there are also some details about this film that are just annoying. And this is minor, but to me, it's representative of a problem, which is just the lack of attention to detail. As, as you just highlighted, Joe, the lack of doing any real research. And I guess this is what when we talked to Peter Olson a couple of weeks ago and he was saying that, you know, Andy Bellin made the mistake of watching this film before writing a screenplay for an alternative biopic. It's just irritating. In 1996, he mentions the, the, the buffet at the Bellagio. The Bellagio didn't open until 1998. Why are you doing that? It's just such a, a ridiculous anachronism that you don't need. And the film should be better than that. Um, for Stewie's road to recovery before the 97 World Series, we, of course, are going to need a montage. Again, tick that box on the cliche list. And did you have any idea what his speech at the end was about? Sometimes you have no outs at all, and we get memories of his life cross-cut with the camera zooming in on the four of clubs. It was a very weird sequence. I'm not going to lie, and I know that I shouldn't because I'm doing this for work, but at that point, I had kind of checked out. Yeah. Um, there was, a, you know, Shade, believe it or not, had my attention. It might have been the fact that I watched these movies pretty much back to back, but Shade had my attention for the full, whatever it was, 95 minutes, a reasonable amount of time. And in this movie, 55 minutes in, I found myself thinking like, eh, I was going to look at my phone for a second. And then... And even though I knew I'm doing the super fan quiz about it, which I tend to pay even more attention, by the end of this movie, there was so much repetition of the ups and downs of Stu Unger that there were certain, when I saw certain tropes being started, a montage, a speech, I kind of just checked out. So no, I don't know what was going on there. I don't have a theory. Just to echo the point that Peter Olson made a couple of weeks back when he said that, you know, the option for the book that he wrote with with Nolan Dollar still exists. I do think there is the scope for a good movie to be made about the life of Stu Unger because it is a very interesting story with some very, you know, tragic elements to it. This sadly is not it and sadly may have scotched the idea of, of such a movie ever being made. I'd love to say that we can now draw a line under it, but I've got some bad news for you. High role of the Stuunga story is the subject of this week's Superfan Quiz. Superfan versus Stakes. So let's introduce ourselves to the masochist who volunteered to watch, not for the first time, 
the <laughs> Stu Unger movie. Uh, Dave Slosher, welcome to Poker in the Ears. Thanks, guys. Glad to be here. Am I saying that correctly? Slusher? Slusher? Uh, yeah. Give or take uh, Give or take the British Isles, yes. That's about okay. right. Okay. How would you say it, Joseph? Give us an Americanization. Dave Slusher. <laughs> exactly. There okay. he is. Dave, what kind of... Uh, I feel like nominative determinism kind of is going to guide your career in some way. You have a very, like... Well, I'm cheating a little bit. I can see that you have a microphone and a green screen uh, in, in your in your domicile. But it, it is it is a very DJ name, like DJ Dave Slusher, <laughs> Mornings with Dave Slusher. What's going on in your life? Well, fun fact, I am the number four podcaster in the world. Wow. And I started in August of 2004. So I have been uh, I have been nerding it up for a very, very long time. So that's fantastic. I, I had a podcast other than this one back in the day, and I am convinced that if I had stuck with it, I think we started in 2006. I'm convinced if we had stuck with it, that we would be somewhere in the top 10 because we used to beat Rogan occasionally. What is mm-hmm. your podcast? Tell me some more about it. Uh, I do too. I do one that is uh, one is basically my uh, my ego and one is my id. So I do one with my friend. I do one that's kind of high-minded and I talk about technology and, and life. And that's called the Evil Genius Chronicles. Cool. And then I do one with my friend that's mad at dad. And uh, we talk about how everyone hates us and we shit our pants. So there you go. Wait, I'm sorry. I need to know more about this second one. <laughs> it's, it's two guys. Both of us started roughly around the same time. So we've got about 30 some years of podcasting between the two of us. And we basically get on there and be our worst selves. So uh, I love it. It's uh, no hold bars, just uh, the awfulness that uh, the awfulness that we can be. We, it has an outlet. Oh, so we try to spare our families. If you, ever need, if you ever need a guest for someone to come on and be awful with you guys, <laughs> I could really use an outlet because a lot of my shit gets cut out of this show. <laughs> there you go. I, I will. Uh, I'll take you up on that, Joe. He's like, it's I a long feel list. like such a fraud, Dave, having someone who is clearly a master of the podcasting <laughs> space come on to our little show and in such horrible circumstances because you put it so eloquently <laughs> in your tweet applying to be on the show. This is not a good film. No, it is not. It is uh, it is amazing that uh, you can take Stu Unger and have so little Stu Unger in a two-hour movie about him. <laughs> I, I, the thing that we've just discussed, obviously we've just been through it in detail, and I don't want to repeat the last kind of like 20 minutes of the show, but I find it incredible that this movie rattles through his life and yet is so turgid. It's two hours <laughs> and it feels like four, and yet it tells about 10% of his life. If you pull up Stu Unger's Wikipedia page, there are more funny stories about him on that page than there are in two hours of this movie. It's really weird. It's almost as if they didn't look at his Wikipedia page before (laughs) they made the movie, which I understand (laughs) Wikipedia didn't exist at the time, but there's, it's hard to watch a two hour movie about somebody and learn almost nothing about them. (laughs) (laughs) And think about this too. There are what four or five hands of poker in this two hours. Not yeah. a lot. Yeah. <laughs> it's it's and, amazing. And one of those hands, Stuanga, isn't even involved in. He's just sitting there watching it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I had watched it probably uh, like at the height. Of, I probably watched it like between episodes of Poker After Dark or something, you know, at the absolute height of the poker boom. Yeah. And boy, did that really let the wind out of my sails. Uh, <laughs> yeah. So I, kn- if- I knew exactly what I was getting into. Okay. Well, 
I, I'm taking it that, like my experience rewatching it, it didn't get any better on second viewing. That time has not been kind to it. No, not at all. Well, the the, the biggest irony is uh, there are three people in this conversation, and, and none of us is a big fan of this movie. But Patrick, the former intern who compiled this quiz, also no. got to see this film for the first time. And quite enjoyed it. But oh, Patrick. There, there is a caveat there. Patrick's <laughs> taste in movies has been known to be questionable. But yes, Patrick has put together this quiz. Now, I'm assuming, Dave, that you are in a part of the United States of America that does not have real money online gaming. Sadly, that is the case. Yes. Okay. So sadly, it's podcast merch that you're competing for here. But hey, a win would be a win. Um, I think you both stand a pretty good chance. It's probably going to come down to choice of question, to be honest, because uh, if you've seen the film recently, I reckon you'll be okay with most of these questions. As ever, multiple choice options available if you want to reduce the score from two points to one point. Uh, Dave, as our guest, as our super fan, uh, please give me a number between one and ten. Always come in seven. Always coming seven. What hand, a little bit of history as well as observation, what hand does Stu Unger win his third and final World Series of Poker main event with? His hold cards in that particular hand. Ace four. Ace four is correct. Do I need the suits? You don't need the <laughs> Just suits. Just like he did in the gin rummy hand. <laughs> don't need the suits. Two points to you, Dave. And Joe, it's your question. Everything but seven available. I knew that was going to be a question. Um, <laughs> it is always coming eight. What year was the film released? 2003. Correct. For two points. Tied game. Round two. Next question, Dave. Uh, how about number one? Number one. How did Stewie lose his bar mitzvah money? Uh, I'm going to take the options. Okay, did he lose it playing Jim Rummy? He left it on a train, it was stolen, or he lost it at the track? He lost it at the track. Correct, for one point. And Joe? That's one of those stories, I got to know if that one's real or not. Did like 13-year-old... Stu Unger really go by himself to the track and lose? And how, and how did he place that bet? Well, did he, like, find some guy in a trench coat? Exactly. Um... $30,000 at the track? <laughs> I, I love the fact that you're expecting A, detail, B, interesting stories, and C, accuracy from this right. movie. Bless you, Joe. Bless you. It's your question. Uh, question, you know what? I'm going to go to the other end. Question 10, please. Question 10. There are two funerals shown in this film which two characters funerals are shown in the film high roller the stew Unger story aka stewie vincent's funeral and stew's dad's funeral correct for two points and you have a one point lead going into the next round two three four five six or nine dave let's go two what is the name of the gentleman who Stu beats at Gin Rummy in New York, who ends up staking him in the World Series of Poker main event. Uh, Mr. Leo, a.k.a. Pat Morita. A.k.a. Mr. Miyagi, correct for two <laughs> points. Uh, and we discussed earlier on that that is a hashtag fake fact. It was Billy Baxter who staked him, not some <laughs> mysterious Asian casino owner. Uh, Joe, what do you want? Um, let's go to number nine, please. Number nine. How does Stewie get away from the bully at the start of the film? 
He throws coins on the ground and kicks them in the balls. Correct, <laughs> for two points. A lot of wonderful <laughs> detail there. What a wonderful detail. Uh, and also that when his dad's like, did you kick him in the balls like I taught you? Yeah. That's my boy. <laughs> There's it's a lot of conversation. moment of approval. <laughs> a lot of conversation about kicking people in the balls in this movie. Uh, three, four, five, or six, Dave? Uh, three. Uh, according to this movie, I not Stu Unger's real wife's name, but the character in the movie, what is the name of Stu's wife slash ex-wife? Angela. Angela for two points. Joe, four, five, or six? I'm going to keep attacking the top while Dave goes bottom. Six. <laughs> Why is Stu kicked out of a casino? Oh, this is a good one. Why is he kicked out of a casino? Oh, well, he, um, he assaults and insults the dealer. Correct for two points. Effectively, dealer abuse. Dealer Something abuse. I have in common with Stu Unger, having been kicked out of a Las Vegas <laughs> casino for dealer abuse. I would point out his was genuine, mine was a misunderstanding. James corrected someone's grammar and they were like, you're out of here, English boy. <laughs> uh, last question, Dave. Four or five? Well, I will, as Joe so eloquently put it, uh, attack the bottom with four. Yeah, you what is the name of Stu's friend who makes a move with seven deuce? Uh, that is DJ. That is DJ for two points. And here's the deal, Joe. Sure for degenerate. <laughs> here's the deal, Joe. If you can get this next question without taking the options, you win the game because you currently have, uh, you're only one point behind. So one point to tie the game, two points for the win. Okay. Question number five. In which year did Stu Unger win his first World Series of Poker main event title? I don't know if getting asking for the choices is going to make this any easier for me. It will only ensure that I can tie it because I think it was 1973. So if it's wrong, I lose. Correct. But if I ask for the choices and it's in there and I choose it, I still lose. The only way it helps me is if it's not one of the choices and I can choose something else. What does the game theory say here? I, <laughs> I'm going to just say 1973 flat out. You should have taken the options because 1973 was not an no. option. 1980 <laughs> was the first year that Stu Unger played oh, and close. won the World Series of Poker main event. So you were close. behind for most of the game, Dave, but you actually squeaked through with a one-point margin. It's nine points to eight. You are a winner, which means you are going to get not one but two Poker in the Ears t-shirts. Yes. I'm trying to rack my brain. Is this the most competitive one of these? Uh this is the most competitive I can remember. It came down to the options on one question, basically. We've had it's, some close ones recently, actually, and Joe's actually squeaked out a couple of victories in recent weeks. The key is, if you pick something that Joe either does not know or is forced to rewatch because he has no memory of it, he performs mm -hmm. relatively well. The specialist subjects where Joe's like, oh, I remember that film from my youth, and then realizes that he doesn't remember it that well, those are the ones where it's a complete shellacking. <laughs> there is no mo there is no movie in my life that I think I could take this quiz without rewatching. Okay, good. Thank goodness. <laughs> I think the key thing is, Dave. I'm glad you won because I do feel that you deserve to be rewarded for volunteering <laughs> oh, right. to rewatch this one. Please tell me that you didn't have to pay to rewatch it. Uh, I have ExpressVPN. Let's put it that way. Okay. <laughs> 
Glad to hear it. Uh, Dave, There's definitely thank you. someone at the iTunes store. It's like, three people rented this movie this week? What the fuck is going on? Well, based on the fact that we want a lot of people to have watched the film before listening to the podcast, I hope it's more than three. Otherwise, yeah. we've got big problems. Time. We're never going to catch up with Dave in the rankings if it's only three people. Uh, Dave, thank you very much for volunteering. Thank you very much for coming on the show. It was a pleasure to talk to you. All right. Thank you, gentlemen. Stay frosty. GG, Dave. Thanks, buddy. <laughs> All right. Bye. All right, my babies. We're almost out of time for this week's show. Coming up next week, we will be two streams into the new and improved actually just new EPT <laughs> Retro. Going to be the it, same exact thing as before. Nope. It's got a new countdown clock. It's got new opening titles. It's got a new look and feel. It is all new. It is new and improved. All right. EPT Retro will be happening between now and the next time we speak. We'll also have more details about EPT Online. And now this is interesting. We've got an interesting guest coming up. We're going to be joined by writer, poker player, and storytelling expert Matthew Dix who's been drafted by the Poker Stars blog to provide tips on how to tell an interesting bad beat story? And I'm going to suggest that one of the two hosts of this show should definitely read his article and will most certainly be asking him for help when he appears on the podcast next week. I will do that, and I will do that. <laughs> Guys, get your super fan applications in. Come on. Come on. Let's do this. Let's, hey, and I just want to reiterate, it does not have to be a movie. It does not have to be a TV show. Remember music of the 20 teens? That was fun. Yeah. That was a good one. How about, uh, I probably suggest, how about Roman history? How about World War II? I don't know. Lots of stuff out there we can talk about. does not have to be movies and TV shows. Until next time, guys, please comment, like, subscribe. Keep us on the air. But for now, that is all the time we've got for this week's show. For James Hardigan, I am Joe Stapleton. Smell you later.